You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio with just a little bit of politics. Listen along as we interview some of the most experienced outdoorsmen in the industry today, where you'll learn valuable tips and tricks to make you a more successful hunter, shooter and fisherman. Here's your host of the Australian Hunting Podcast, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast, Hunting, Shooting and Fishing Radio. I'm your host Jason Selms and this is episode 29, Fishing and the Outdoors with Downrigger Shops, Andrew Hestelow. I know I've received a lot of emails from fish shows around Australia uh, wanting to get a fishing personality or someone from fishing on the show and uh, I've known Andrew uh, Hestelow for quite some time now. He's the owner of downriggershop.com.au, an online shop where you can purchase all your fishing related gear and equipment. Uh, Some of the things Andrew's going to discuss on the show is the current position of fishing in Australia, safety when fishing, marine parks, spear fishing, fishing exclusion zones, rock, beach, boat and wharf fishing, fishing licenses and where your money goes for those fishing licenses and much, much more. I guess a lot of people may not know who Andrew is and I don't want to say he came to fame from this certain event, but I guess for people that don't know who he is, uh, Andrew attended the Waronga Park National Parks hunting protest where he was spat on and crash tackled to the ground by a Greens constituent who obviously uh, disagreed with what Andrew uh, was protesting about on the day. Uh, the event was, I won't say hosted by, but uh, was spoken in by MLC of the Upper House, Kate Famine from the Greens Party. Uh, and unfortunately her megaphone or uh, speaker system wasn't working, so she did have to uh, use her voice. And that's when Andrew did get on his megaphone and said a few things that were, I think, reasonable and asked questions of the Greens Party. And it seemed this Greens constituent obviously disagreed with it and decided to crash tackle Andrew to the ground. Uh, He was also spat on by a a senior citizen lady as well, but I won't go into too much more because I'd rather get Andrew to discuss actually what happened on the day. Uh, The last podcast, Coalition Against Duck Shooting with Wad Drew, has had fantastic downloads. In the last four weeks, it's had over 5,000 downloads, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, It even seemed to get a bit of reaction on the Coalition Against Duck Shooting's Facebook page with a uh, personal attack against me. I also heard from Rod Drew, and he's receiving phone calls from people around the country saying a fantastic job both of us did on the show so send Rod an email uh, at Field and Game Australia to you know give him thanks for coming on the show you certainly did a great job coming up on the Australian Hunting Podcast I've got Cole Allison I've been wanting to get Cole on the show for quite some time and we finally was able to make it happen Cole is a very funny guy that's for sure so it's great having Cole on the show to share some of his adventures and stories also coming up I've got Hunting with Dogs with uh, the Game Council's Ned Makem I uh, just did that one the other day so that's another fantastic show coming up before Christmas and I'm also going to be interviewing uh, Brian Boyle, the CEO of the Game Council of New South Wales as well, coming up very soon as well. So plenty to come up before the end of 2012 for the hunting, shooting and fishing listeners of the Australian Hunting Podcast. So plenty to come. Also too, don't forget, jump on the australianhuntingpodcast.com.au website. That's where you can get all the information about the show. Uh, Facebook, Australian Hunting Podcast, almost up to a thousand likes on Facebook. I've got a couple of mods on there, Brad Corey and Chloe Newman doing a fantastic job on on there for me throwing up links uh, photos you name it they're doing it so you know don't forget to welcome them on the page you can like us on twitter at ah podcast but if you wanted to email me for any reason whether it's to get somebody on the show whether it's to ask me a question please i'd love to hear from you at australian hunting podcast at gmail.com itunes is the best one of the best places to listen to the podcast other than the website uh, don't forget while you're listening to it right now if you're on your computer please jump on there rate five stars and also leave a comment that gets us up the top 
of the sports and recreation subsection on iTunes. If you're overseas or you're somewhere other in the world and you've got Stitcher on your phone, your Android or your iPhone, you can listen to it on Stitcher.com uh, so long as you've got a Wi-Fi or internet connection. Uh, you can jump on my business website, aussieferralcontrol.com.au, share the Australian hunting podcast with your friends and family. That's always greatly appreciated. I appreciate all the listeners that have given me feedback, that have emailed me. We've got plenty coming up uh, on the show before Christmas. Uh, I'm also heading down to the Riverina next week, I think on the 6th of November to uh, hunt ducks over rice on the mitigation program. So I hope that's going to be a bumper year helping out the farmers and also bringing some ducks back uh, for the table as well, which I think is going to be fantastic. Also too, if you go on the AustralianHuntingPodcast.com.au website, uh, on the right hand side, there's a widget bar where you can get links to everything to do with the Australian Hunting Podcast, whether it be Twitter, Facebook, our YouTube page. But the main part of it there is the donations button. All donations uh, to the Australian Hunting Podcast really help out with hosting, uh, new gear and equipment. And if you like what we're doing here, uh, donations really help, that's for sure. So all the donations are really, really appreciated. So that's pretty much about it, guys. Uh, This podcast is dedicated to the fish shows in Australia. So let's rock this show. Without further ado, let's get into my interview with Downrigger Shops, Andrew Hestelo. This is Andrew Hestelow from downriggershop.com.au and we're talking hunting, fishing and a little outdoor politics with Jason Selms from Australian Hunting Podcast. Andrew Hestelow, welcome to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Pleasure to have you on the show to talk about lots of fishing and a little bit of hunting. I'm very happy to be here, Jason. Absolutely. So I guess give us, uh, give the listeners, you know, a little bit of a personal background, you know, I guess how you got into fishing, your business, and yeah, and how you got into fishing and hunting. Okay, well, uh, gosh, that's going a long way back, my friend. I, um, uh, my parents separated when I was very early, and I was being raised by five women, being my three sisters, my mother and my grandmother. And uh, my dear mother got a bit concerned that I had too much female influence in my life. So every holiday she used to send me out to a guy out at Canamble in uh, western New South Wales. And I used to spend all, every three weeks of those holidays hunting and fishing and riding and doing all that outdoor stuff. And it gave me a love of the outdoors I've never really lost. No, yeah, so um, well, I guess for you, I mean, you're a big fisherman. So what type of fishing, I mean, do you enjoy? Well, I'm mainly fishing offshore. I mean, I've been out today, that was just in Sydney Harbour, but um, I'm mainly fishing like out around the continental shelf, fishing deep water, and of course we have a tackle company and we mainly specialise in uh, offshore types of gear, so we're sort of fishing for tuna, sharks, deep water, you know, fish that live down at 400 metres, kingfish, Spanish mackerel, that kind of stuff. Sort of the larger fish, uh, or hopefully the larger fish, because quite frankly it's been a bit of a tough week. Yeah, exactly. And what? So, how did you get? How did you want to get? I guess start running your business. What sort of motivated you to start running your business? Well, I just thought that. Um, I mean, I've always worked for myself, or I've worked for myself for like twenty years, um, and I just saw an opportunity out there because what is happening is so many new techniques are coming in, and uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's. I mean, we, the internet has made you know the world next door, and there's methods like downrigging and jigging and this kind of thing, which are invented in. Uh, well, I guess you'd say fishing territories where there's so much more pressure and so much less fish. And when those techniques are adapted here to Australia, where we've still got a pretty good solid fishery, it can be, they can be enormously successful. Yeah, so how did you go today on the uh, fish in Sydney Harbour? I mean, how did, how did you go today? Today was tough, Jase. I mean, I'm just telling my, 
um, <laughs> my bride about it um, because what I wanted to do was I wanted to go out and do something a little bit different. I wanted to go out and, and, and do uh, a day on the harbour and catch some good fish using tackle, everything, rods, reels, lines, terminal tackle and bait. The whole lot had to be less than 100 bucks in cost and come back with some nice fish. And I have been doing that off the rocks down at the spit in Middle Harbour in Sydney with blackfish. But I, I haven't been able to get any big ones. I've been getting like 25 centimetre jobs. So today was the day I wanted to get a 35 centimetre or a 40 centimetre blackfish and I could not do it. No. <laughs> but that's fishing, my friend. That is fishing. If, if you've got a... If you're highly strung and you can't take failure well, it's probably not the sport for you. Yeah. So what? What? what like when you're out there catching fish, what is some of the biggest fish you've caught? Like, uh, you know, you see you like going out the deep water sort of stuff. So, uh, well, what... a typical trip I'm going on Wednesday. We're going to go out to Browns Mountain. Um, we will start with a kingfish jigging session at the 12 Mile Reef, which, as you might guess, is 12 miles off Sydney Heads. Um, that's 100 metres deep, and we'll be jigging for kingfish there. Then we'll go on another probably 11 miles, pretty much east-southeast, out to Browns Mountain, which is an underwater extinct volcano uh, off the continental shelf, and it's 400 metres deep. When we get out there, we'll be fishing for gemfish and blue-eye cod on the bottom and mako sharks on the top. And wow. that's pretty typical. I usually do that pretty much every week if the weather, if the weather is, is good enough to get out there. You need good weather. Is that even um, like in the winter time, all year round, just the summer? When do you sort of do you have time off? Or I find the winter time is best for game fishing off Sydney. I mean, we don't have any marlin, but usually this year's been a little bit tough. But usually we have uh, yellowfin tuna, we have albacore, we have a very consistent, reliable fishery out in 400 metres of water at Browns Mountain on the bottom. So you can usually come back with some big, tasty fish. You know, you could come back with an esky full. And then you can target the uh, game water, uh, game fishing species. I'm a big fan of mako sharks, and they're just swarming out there this winter. Yeah. So, what, what? Tell me. I guess tell us a little bit about. I mean, sharks. I mean, how do? do, you, do what do you actually do with them? How do they? Is it just more of a sport? Yeah. Tell us. I mean, I'd like to a bit more info about that. Well, for many, many years. I mean, I, I quite regret when I think back now. We used to fish for them with heavy uh, wire, and. Um, J hooks, which obviously is a hook that looks like a J. So we would let them get the bait down and they would have the hook somewhere inside themselves internally. And if we wanted to keep them, uh, we would bring them aboard. If we didn't want to keep them, we would cut the wire. But they would still have a, a large stainless steel hook somewhere in their system, which is not good for any fish, um, even though makos are very, very tough. So now what we do is we fish with a full commercial circle um, and we just have one metre of wire, and on top of that we have 400 or 500 pound monofilament. So you bring the fish up to the side. If you don't want to keep it, you just flash the mono, and off it goes with a, a hook just in the corner of its mouth, which rots, rots out quite quickly. Um, and it's just so much better for the sharks. I mean, when I started, whatever, 20, 25 years ago, there were nowhere near as many wintertime sharks around because they were so hammered by the foreign longliners. Mm. And so now the foreign longliners have been booted out, um, um, you know, the, the makos are just roaring back. I mean, there are so many mako sharks down in Victoria now, small ones. They're making snapper fishing quite difficult down around Phillip Island and what have you. Yeah, so what do you do with them? I mean, like, as I said, do you, you, you let them go. When you bring them on board, what can you use them for? Well, they're really spectacular. I mean, the fight itself is really spectacular. As far as I know, they're the only fish that jumps out. They're the only shark that leaps out of the water three times its own length. And I've got all that on YouTube. You can see that on our YouTube site. 
Um, so they're really, really spectacular. They start out with three, four, five, six huge jumps, and then they do a crash dive down at the bottom, 400 metres down, 500 metres down. So you have this howling run, which is really, really exciting. When you get them up next to the boat, um, 90% of them we let go, we cut the line, but every so often we keep one because uh, a small one, like a 60 kilo, 70 kilo one, is very tasty on the barbecue if you look after it and prepare it properly. Really? Never know. Yeah. I mean, no, you we used to go to your local fish and chip shop and they always said it was the hake or flake or whatever they call it. Tasted pretty good when it was deep fried anyway, I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look after it, I mean, Mako's are a little bit funny because a lot of people, without getting too technical, they have a little like a white fibrous sort of uh, muscle across the top of the fillets. You really need to cut that off. That flavours uh, the meat on the barbecue or whatever in a way that a lot of people don't like. But once you get down to those nice tender um, fillets and cook them in a hot pan fast, you know, 30 seconds per side, it's hard, very hard. Even people who don't like fish find it hard to knock that back, Jase. Yeah, I can, I, can, I can imagine. So, I mean, you're obviously going out, you know, onshore, sorry, offshore a fair bit. So, I mean, what's, what's, I mean, what sort of boat do you have? I mean, is that uh, important? You had to get good weather? Look, I'm very fortunate. I have got a good offshore boat. It's not perfect. I've had it for 25 years. It's had uh, four outboards and uh, three paint jobs. It's just got a new outboard two weeks ago, which has been running like a dream. Um, but look, I am very, very fortunate, Jace, because I can fish midweek. So a lot of my clients and a lot of my friends are dependent. Really, the only day they can get out is Sunday, which gives them a one in seven chance. Um, they've got family responsibilities or you know, kids with school sport on Saturday, so Saturday's out. Um, I'm lucky I can go midweek. So, for instance, I'm going to Browns on Wednesday. Oh, for your luck. I said that gives me the flexibility, meaning that I don't have to worry too much about the weather because I can pick the optimum weather day. Exactly. I mean, half your luck. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, 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 the uh, bride or the wife lets you get out. She's a, she's a keeper then, obviously. She is definitely a keeper. I would not <laughs> be throwing her back for the, all the tea in China. A good one probably to get into is tell the listeners, I mean, about, you know, obviously there's a lot of threats, you know, on fishing in New South Wales and around Australia. I mean, tell the listeners maybe who don't know, you know, such as yourself, what industry insiders would know, that, you know, you may be able to share with the listeners about what's happening in the fishing industry that may be a threat. Okay, well, um, look, even if you're not a fisherman, um, just about everybody has driven through a national park and if they've got any observation of the passage of time, they will have noticed the tracks that used to be able to go down now have a boom gate across and they've got a sign on the tracks and it says service track. Um, they will have noticed that there are huge areas of national parks where you're not even allowed to go in a vehicle or camp or horse ride or anything like that. They're declared wilderness areas. They will have noticed that state forests, which we used to have quite public access to, so many of which have now been converted into national parks and of course once that happens there's very very little fire uh, fire hazard management so we've been having these i mean we've been lucky with these wet years recently but up until they started we've been having these horrific bushfires so what you have got is you have got a group of people obviously they call themselves conservationists i could just call them straight out greenies who have a <laughs> philosophical opposition to people enjoying the bush, which is public land, and they trade their votes in support, usually of the Labor Party, um, for kickbacks like more marine parks or national park closures. We've got 800 national parks and reserves in New South Wales now, 800, which is just so absurd.
Yeah, are they are they off limits to what? Is that just commercial, off off to even recreational fishermen or? Well, huge areas are. I mean, if you're talking about land national parks, all you have to do is talk to people who operate horse riding businesses or anyone who's operated. You don't have to go way out west or down the south. Anyone who's operated a um, uh, a restaurant, you know, down at Bobbin Head or a cafe or anything like that, the nightmare time they have with uh, the National Parks and Wildlife Service as a landlord, it's horrific. So, you know, the, they, despite the fact that technically these national parks are public land owned by the citizens of New South Wales or whatever state you might be in, they take them as their own private property and they like to run the regulations the way they see fit. They are not managed for the public. And that's right. The funny thing is, is it's public land. It's not their land. So how do they get to dictate to us what, you know, the, they get to do with the land? Yeah, it's just as much ours as is theirs. Well, it depends a bit on... Um, I mean, look, most frontline parkies or parks and, parks and wildlife employees are not bad people, but... At, at the head office in Hurstville, there was a hard green element, um, an ideological element which sets the policies and the framework under which they operate. And I mean, so I mean, last Wednesday, I was at a, a Caltech service station in Roseville, and in front of me there was a parked vehicle with a Greens Party sticker on the back, a Greens Party sticker opposing hunting in national parks. Now that's in complete breach of the Public Service Act, but that's the level of arrogance we're talking about. Interesting, very interesting. Yeah. We've got a few more questions coming up about that, but we'll hit that a little later as well. But if, let's say, you know, people, you know, let's say they're already hunting or shooting, or even if they're not, let's say, they, but they want to get out and they want to start fishing. They don't, they don't have a boat. Yep. Uh, what type of, you know, fishing would you, obviously we're talking about safety as well, but we'll get that in the next question. But let's say what type of fishing would you recommend somebody, you know, to start with that doesn't have any, any, any of the boats, they're, they're getting started. Give us a rundown what you think that they'd be best starting on. Well, I reckon the best way to go, and I, I say this to people who want to get into hunting, want to get into fishing, whatever, if they're interested in getting into the outdoors, maybe they have some kids and they want to give them a taste of the great Australian outdoors. I always reckon the first thing to do, and it's usually not expensive, is to join a club because most of these clubs have you know, outdoor days. I mean, you think about the hunting club, you think about the, the Deer Association going down for their one and get a junction hunts and that kind of stuff. And you get to know everybody, you get to learn so much. It's so much easier to do it with people who you know uh, and who are friendly and who want to see you succeed than it is just, you know, grabbing a rod and reel from Kmart and walking down to the wharf. That's a tough way. But if you have a look, uh, I mean, if you have a look in tackle stores or something like that, you can find there's a range of how-to DVDs. Um, there's Al McClashen's got a great book on, you know, how to fish Australian waters, and it covers everything from whiting to blue marlin. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, that's the way to go. You've got to do a little bit of research and get out there and enjoy it because seriously, for some species, Jason, uh, the fishing has never been better. Yeah. You know, I'm just putting together a trip down at Yukonbeam um, in late spring, and even though it's early, you know, early days, I'm hearing that the, the lake is just absolutely full of brown trout, and I'm looking forward to that enormously. Yeah, no, I was thinking about that too. I, I got a friend every couple of years. I go down to Malakuta with my one of my best mates, and um, mm -hmm. gee, there's some awesome. Like I think two years ago, we went. We're going back in January this year, and. Man, we caught a couple of uh, some of the ones we didn't even bring up. I, was, I give my mate a bit of grief every time I see him about it. But we, you know, we caught a couple of seventy-five centimeter uh, flathead. 
We caught, uh, I caught two 42 centimeter brim. I mean, beautiful. Really? Wow. Off the, uh, off the, uh, off the uh, live potty mullets and that. Man, they just love them, mate. Throw them on. One day it was so hot, like it was in, like the, the fishing was so hot, it was unbelievable. We were like, we were just pulling them in like you wouldn't believe. Like when it's like that, there's nothing better, is there? Mate, it is so exciting. And, you know, I still remember the first fish I ever caught is the teeny little lad with dad. Okay, it was only a toady. Um, but I remember it, you know what I mean? And, and, and uh, you know, I don't want to get too caveman-ish or too philosophical, but there is something about going out with, like, a male relative and learning the ropes, whether it be out in the bush, whether it be starting your first campfire, shooting your first rabbit, catching your first whiting, whatever. Um, there's sort of a, I don't know, there's sort of an intergenerational thing and a hand-me-down of knowledge there, which is basic human knowledge for any, any bloke who... Wants to learn. Absolutely, and let's say someone, let's say even if people aren't going out on their own, they're mm-hmm. going with uh, friends or family. Let's talk about just quickly talk about safety. Is it a big factor in fishing? I mean, whether it be rock fishing, boats, you know, jetties, wharves, off the beach. What do people maybe like? What should they take, or what, maybe what they need, you know, to you know to make sure they're safe, so people know where they are and they're not you know getting in trouble. What would they need to take with them? What should they take with them? Well, look, if you, take out, if you take out rock fishing out of the equation and you take alcohol out of the equation, those two factors are massively over-represented in any kind of you know, accident on the water or fishing. I mean, if, if, if you've had you know, a dozen coldies and you get behind the wheel of a powerful outboard-powered boat... You know, you can't say, oh, that's a, you know, and you go and you've got some rods in the boat. You can't say that's a fishing related accident. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, basic common sense. Um, I mean, you, you know, unfortunately, what we have got, which is a big factor in, in, in rock fishing fatalities, is that so many new Australians, for want of a better word, have come to our country and they're used to fishing the quiet, calm rocks or whatever in their own country. Right. Mm. So, you know, you might have like, I mean, you know, I've, I've been to Japan quite a few times um, on business and you, know, you go to the coast there, the open ocean, and for 10 months of the year, it's dead flat. It's like a lake. So, um, you, you know, people who are more used to the, sort of the environment in, in other countries don't realize just how dangerous, you know, the, the Western Pacific Ocean can be. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we have these tragedies. I mean, that's before you have, not, it's not just the swell. I mean, you've got the slippery, greasy rocks and all this kind of stuff. But taking that out, and that is not usually where people start. That's not entry-level fishing, you know? Yeah. Um, going down to like Pier 2 in Sydney Harbour, going down to your local wharf. The only thing is I always worry about, a bit about that, Jace, because sometimes, you know, the fishers, especially in a big city like this one, they're not as friendly as what you might expect. I mean, if you go down to Pier 2 on a sunny Sunday afternoon and there's 20 guys down there fishing, they're probably not going to be that friendly and open to someone who wants to learn. You know what I mean? Yeah. It yep. gets a little competitive when it's busy like that. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess we were also talking about uh, like, you know, boats before, but a lot of people have asked me, you know, is there still good fishing to be had from either, you know, rocks, beaches, wharves? You know, because, I mean, a lot of people, you know, there's quite a, you know, expense to owning a boat. So can there be some great fishing uh, to be had from, you know, if, if people don't have a boat? Yes, they sure can, and that's what I was actually trying to do today. And, I mean, we, we catch these blackfish, which are a great fighting fish, and they're a really good eating fish if they're properly prepared. But, uh, you know, today they just wouldn't play ball, which is another part of fishing which sometimes drives me a bit bare, mate. <laughs> but, look, the Sydney Harbour, I mean, we have had... They have cut a deal. Um, they bought back the, um, the, the, the commercial fishing licences, 
um, and paid out all the guys who were in that uh, in that industry. And of course, the, the problem with the trawling was that so many juvenile species are killed in the nets. That's the real problem. So you don't have as high recruitment. Um, now, once that stopped, I mean, Sydney Harbour, which I have been fishing, I mean, I fish Sydney Harbour up to 120 days a year, um, and, and it's changed a lot. It's improved a lot. The fishery is good. Yeah, The yeah. fishery is rock solid, and you do not need, you know, a 25-foot hydra sports to get out there and catch a fish. All you need is 100 bucks worth of tackle. Having said that, if any of your listeners are actually actively thinking about getting into fishing for the first time, I would advise against going to Big W or whatever and buying a rod and reel that's on a blister pack. Yeah. Well, what, what would you recommend they do? Well, I think the best thing is to go and talk to someone who knows. You know, normally someone's got a connection with someone who's got some track record. I mean, if you're thinking about buying a car, you know, you don't go and ask RTF. Well, you go and ask someone, you know, you go and ask people who know. And in the same way, you should gravitate towards someone. I mean, look, anybody's welcome to send me an email. I really mean that, even if it's got nothing to do with our tackle, because um, I want to see more people getting out there and doing it. I mean, it's a fantastic sport. It was absolutely beautiful out there today. I know. Just that the fish wouldn't play ball. Half your luck. But, I mean, you said, you know, talking about, a lot of people have said, oh, you know, Sydney, that's fished out, there's no fish, all the people are, you know, all the people know the spots, no one's giving any info. What is the current uh, state of fishing, you know, industry, especially obviously in New South Wales? How good is Sydney uh, for fishing? Is it picking up in your experience over the last 20 years? Is it, is it dying? Is it, are the fish species starting to come back in? Give us a bit more info. Well, some, fe- some species, uh, it- it's in a constant state of flux. That would be the-, the real issue. I mean, I could go into it for hours, species by species, but it's in a constant state of flux. Some, <coughs> I beg your pardon, some um, species like, for instance, if we're talking the deep water, like gemfish, are roaring back. Orange ruffy are on the way back. Now, they're, they're, I don't know if you remember that name, but they were, yeah, absolutely. You know, they, they were like, a, they're a delicious deep water species. Uh, Mako sharks are coming back in a huge way. Australian salmon are almost in some places considered a pest species and they're a great fighting fish. On the other hand, um, the marlin fishery is collapsing. The yellowfin tuna fishing fishery is collapsing, all because of overfishing in our neighbouring waters. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, southern bluefin tuna, I mean, a whole... I mean, it's so exciting what's happening down in Victoria. You have got... Uh, guys down are fishing at Portland, you know, you've got the, 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 um, the boat trailer queue is over a kilometre long on a sun, Sunday now, and we're talking big six and a half metre, seven metre trailer boats. Everybody's going out there, everybody's catching fish, they have police at the trailer queue, not because there's any troubles, but one, well, one car at the head of the queue, one car at the tail of the queue, and um, it's just fantastic. Now that is an example with that species, which is southern bluefin tuna, of how fast these, this fishery can come back when it's properly managed. Unfortunately, in some cases, they aren't properly managed. Exactly. I mean, the hot topic at the moment is the big super trawler uh, at the moment. You know, it's all over Facebook, it's all over the news, it's it everywhere. Is. So, I mean, I mean, for people that don't know, you know, what the super trawler is or what it does or how it affects not only, I mean, commercial, obviously, fishing, but, you know, recreational fishing and fish numbers in Australian waters. So, I mean, is there two sides to a story? Is it a storm in a teacup or, or is it a, a very serious thing that needs to be stopped? Look, it has been stopped. Um, it's, oh, look, it is, there's massively two sides to the story. I mean, a, a company, a seafood company in Tasmania was issued with a quota which was set, the quota, 
was set by scientists as being 5% of the fishery, of what they call the small pelagic fishery, which is jack mackerel and red bait, um, two very small fish. Um, rather than send out Aussie boats for this, they hired a trawler from Holland, the Netherlands, called the Margiris. Um, the Mar that was then the subject of, well, to some degree, a disinformation campaign because um, the Labor activist group GetUp uh, ran a big petition online in which if you clicked that you supported the position, you automatically became a member of GetUp. Um, look, the interesting thing, the positive thing about the whole affair is that it showed and it militarised and, it, and it, it, it provided an impetus for fishers to get off their butts and get out there and protest a decision that they felt was not in their interests. And that's been the really interesting part about it. Um, if you look at like the Shooters and Fishers Party here in New South Wales, um, a lot of their uh, a lot of their vote on the mid north coast coalesced around the protest uh, of blocking up fish rock off southwest rocks, Jason. Yep, yep. And this is sort of this sort of reminds me of that a lot, but on a far larger scale. The only thing is because fish shows haven't really got into this kind of action a lot. It's kind of sad, but in some ways the credit has gone to the greenies. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah. I mean, speaking of the Greens too, I mean, they want more marine parks. So I guess the first question is, uh, what are these marine parks and exclusion zones and how do they affect, I mean, recreational fishing and lockouts for fishers in Australia? Well, all they are is just, they're just the, the, the ocean equivalent of the wilderness area and national parks on land. And they have locked up so much, such huge areas of land and, and it got to such a farcical point. I mean, there was a cotton property at Burke which employed 70 people directly, which was bought back um, and declared a national park. Now, how possibly can a laser-leveled cotton farm be a national park? Um, but these greenies have a wish list, and when their, their coalition partners, in this case the Labor Party, uh, really need their votes or really need their support on something, they just go up there with the wish list and that's how they get the marine parks. I mean, keep in mind that Federal Environment Minister Tony Burke was a Wilderness Society campaigner himself. I mean, it's very important to remember that a lot of these people who put these things through are just, I mean, look at um, his predecessor, Peter Garrett. He was the president of the Australian Conservation Foundation. They go from the Green Groups into Parliament and then into a ministry. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, but yeah. then again, I think as uh, last week they had the, I mean, at least around my year, they had the you know local council, uh, you know, voting going on, and the Greens took a quite a hammering. I think they're up for, a, you know, I'm, I'm hoping, anyway, I'm praying anyway, they're up for a big hammering uh, at the federal election. I think next year, I think. Uh, we're all hoping so, and that has definitely happened um, uh, last weekend in the Netherlands, um, which is important because. In some ways, those sorts of countries in Northern Europe are a little bit like the canary down the mine. They are the first countries to pick up. I mean, the, the whole concept of the Greens Party is not one that is going to have any longevity in the real world because their policies are so anti-human. Their policies are so anti-family. Their policies are so anti-business that if they get in and do the damage, then there is a subsequent reaction like we're seeing now with the Greenies. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, so if you get in, they, they get in on the basis that, you know, they cuddle koalas or whatever, and then when they get in, people see their real hardcore green extremism. You look at Lee Rhiannon, who's now a federal MP. 
and what's been coming out with her in Parliament this week, that she had trips to the Soviet Union, that she went to the Lenin University, that she's been given the Order of Lenin. I mean, that, that, that gives you an idea of where the Greenies really are coming from. I'm not big on conspiracy theories, but they, their, their private ideology is one... Australians don't, Australians don't like extremists, Jason. Exactly. So, I mean, the more we get to know about them, the more we get to know about them, the less we like them. Yeah, so there's no real science behind the marine parks. It's just simply just lock it up. Don't want anybody in there. No, you know, obviously no hunting, no shooting, no fishing, nothing. Just lock it up. No science whatsoever. But as we have seen with the climate change issue, these days, if you pay enough, you will get the science you want. Mm. Right? So if you remember, as I clearly remember, when wilderness areas were introduced here in New South Wales, especially the one down around the areas where I often frequent, down around the Lower Monero, Kosciuszko, the Upper Murray River, that sort of area, um, there were all kinds of promises made about how you know, we, we were going to close these areas up, we were going to keep the four-wheel drives out, and native species were going to have the time to regenerate, and it hasn't happened. All that's happened is horrific fires, because, of course... The Greens are opposed to human intervention into the wilderness or to, into nature. So, you know, despite countless coroner's inquests into fires, the recommendations are never followed through. That's right. And it's great because I think the last few of the articles I read last week, I mean, they were you know getting swings of anywhere from 8 to 12, up to, even up to 15% against them. So, I mean... Yeah, they... it's all good news. It's all good news. But look, I, I would hesitate to draw too much from it, my friend, because... What happens is the media are so sympathetic to the Greens Party that in the run-up to the federal election, you can bet that the Greens Party will engineer some kind of issue on which they can hang their hat. They always have. It may be something totally unrelated. They will find like a point of difference between themselves and Labor, and they will say, vote for us and we'll whatever, you know. Um, they're very, very good at that, and they're very good at stage managing the election. And uh, with media groups like Fairfax and the ABC give them overwhelming sympathy. I mean, there is no criticism whatsoever of the Greens allowed on the ABC, as I'm sure you know. That's right. I hope they're not going to hang their hat on the carbon tax. That's probably what's going to sink Labor this time around anyway. I think so. Um, you know, um, there's really another snow job this week in the press about Tony Abbott this and Tony Abbott that. But the real thing that's got people uh, upset is that now they're opening their first power bills after the carbon tax came in and they're getting a shock. We were told it was going to be about a 9% increase across the board. Try 100% in some cases. Right? Try power bills going from 280 bucks to 600 bucks. that kind of stuff. It's horrible for families. Ridiculous. Um, and it's all a result of a hard green agenda forced through, or was it forced through? I mean, Labor said, you know, they had to do these deals with the Greens and Adam Bant and what have you to get it in, but I don't think they fought too hard, Jason. No, I don't think they did either, but mm. let's talk about, I mean, another good one type of fishing is spear fishing too. I mean, yeah. I know there's, I think I saw a video from one of the, I'm not sure who it was, but a fellow did about a 15-minute presentation on, uh, you know, spear fishing. I mean, is there a threat to the, threat to the sport of being, uh, you know, banned? And, I mean, tell us about, I mean, spear fishing as well. Is there still, is there still a bit of a little diehard group of people that love doing that as well? It's getting bigger and bigger. Um, I don't do it myself. Now, that video was fantastic. That was John Featherston from Spearfishing Australia. Um, I mean, everyone was just blown away by that. I've, never, I've seen it a couple of times, like, speaking truth to, to power. That guy absolutely laid it on the greenies at that conference or whatever. Um, it's becoming very, very popular. 
Um, and as, well, as long as, I mean, there's always been a little bit of resentment between fishos and spearos. But um, look, it's a great big ocean out there. There are so many fish. Also, a lot of the people getting into the sport uh, of spearfishing are real adventure machines. I mean, there are guys going out off the continental shelf with like fish attractors and, you know, they're hunting tuna and wahoo, dolphin fish, some of these big pelagic predators. Very exciting stuff. You can see it all on YouTube or on their DVDs. It's fantastic. I can imagine. I wouldn't want to get that. They might, they might pull you down. <laughs> this sort of it, ha- it happens. I mean, it's a real challenge. And, um, you know, these big, powerful fish. I mean, when you... Um, yeah, wow. I mean, there's some, I've got a friend who does it up at Coffs Harbour, and some of his videos are nothing short of amazing. I can imagine. But it's a little bit under the radar. I mean, these guys are under threat too, because what they have got to deal with is not just the, the general lockouts that are being put in place by Burke and his greenie mates, but there could be, you know, bubbling under, there could be like an animal welfare thing involved there too because the Greens will use anything they can. They will use any fear campaign available to attack, you know, the people who enjoy the outdoors like we do. That's exactly. I mean, let's talk about, another one's rock fishing too, you know. Um, A lot of people, you know, obviously rock fishing is fun, can be dangerous. Now, obviously, you know, a few months back, you know, several people had died. Mm -hmm. You know, they've been washed off the rocks. Yep. Um, and then, you know, they have been saying they want to, you know, make them compulsory wearing life jackets, etc., to make it safer. You know, mm-hmm. do you think this is, you know, do you think that's a good, a good idea, or should it be the discretion of the fishermen and their experience? What do you think? Oh, mate, I think you can't legislate common sense, right? If you go down to North Head or Bluefish or whatever, Malabar, uh, these kind of places. Um, look, look at, look at, look at Malabar. You go down there, the rocks have got crosses laid into them in memoriam of, you know, um, you know, Uncle Bill or whatever got washed in in 1972. Um, what you have to do is you have to use common sense. Uh, look, I have, I have been, I've been a witness to a rock fishing drowning. That was a long time ago. This idea that there is some simple way of preventing it. I mean, I remember they threw, I was only a lad at the time, they, they had a... Um, like a cricket, the inside of a cricket ball, you know, the cork inside of a cricket ball? Yep, yep. That was tied on the end of a safety rope. They threw it across the guy's shoulder, and he was so... Sh- he wasn't even injured. He was so shocked by going into the water, he was not even able to grab, grab the rope. It was horrible. Mm. So this idea that there's some kind of automatic whatever, I, I don't know, I don't know. It, the best thing is never to put yourself in a position where you could be in danger. And it's not that hard to avoid. You know? what about but the- I go back to what we were sorry to interrupt. No, I go right. back to what we were saying before, Jace, because we see the same thing with people rolling their boats on uh, bar crossings in northern New South Wales. That there is like you've come there to fish, you've gone up to whatever southwest rocks, or you've gone up to um, Brunswick Heads or whatever to fish. You've taken a trailer boat. It's too rough. And eventually the temptation or the, you know, you don't want to take that thing all the way home and not having gone out and you could roll the trailer, but it's the same stuff. You've driven all the way down to Malabar and the seas are a bit bigger than what you thought and they're a bit bigger than what you're comfortable with, but you figure you'll take the risk and sometimes the risk is just not worth taking. Exactly. But there's some good, I guess there's a good rock fishing to be had, Dave, you you know, what sort of species can people get off the rocks generally? What's, uh, I don't know, a few friends did black, blackfish as well. What's, what, what's good? Look, I always think blackfish is a great one to start with. Um, they're not a major commercial species for the most ridiculous of reason, which is that a lot of people just don't even know that they have a black stomach lining which should be scraped off with an old toothbrush. If you do that, they taste 200% better. 
Um, they're along the whole of the coast. Um, they're available anywhere. You don't automatically have to go to dangerous open ocean rocks to get blackfish. I mean, there are, you can start out of Middle Harbour or, I mean, I'm talking about Sydney here, but the same thing holds true for Jarvis Bay anywhere. And they're a widespread, good fighting, tasty, quite tasty if you properly manage them, fish where you don't need a zillion bucks in tackle to get into them. Exactly. That's what, that's what today was all about. But would you believe the blackfish wouldn't play ball? No. What is that? When you're say, off rocks, or you, it depends on what you're doing, is that, are they, are they a, a, like a, a deep fish? Are they a, are you just below the surface on, a, on, a, on like a, um, what do they call them, like a pop or a, uh, what do they call them again? A, um, a float? float? Yeah. They, yeah. Okay, <laughs> so. I couldn't even think about a float then. But yeah, are they a float? Are they deep? Are they middle? middle uh, yeah, just tell, tell us about them, yeah. Okay, well, if you think of, um, okay, if, if you think of our hunting experiences, right? Um, yep. You know, um, large herbivores like cattle or deer or whatever are constantly grazing because the food they eat have, has a low protein content. So it's the same with blackfish. Their primary source of food, they are herbivores too. I'm not sure what the ocean term for that is, but they're eating green weed. So they have to eat a lot more regularly um, than you know what you know a high quality a high class predator who's like a tuna who's taking a whole mullet or whatever. So You've got, already got, um, in, in the ocean rocks, you have got the food, which is the green weed which grows on the rocks. All you do is you wear safety cleats, which are the metal plates which go on the bottom of your shoes, which you can buy at any tackle store. Scrape some of that green weed off, put it on the hook beneath your float, cast it out. Obviously, the best place to start will be somewhere which is a very, very popular blackfish spot. Um, because it'll be a popular spot for a good reason. And you can observe the other fishermen and see what they do and copy what they do. Are they a good fighter? I reckon they're a great fighter. I mean, obviously, they're not a gigantic fish like the stuff we get out of brown. Yeah. So you have to match the hatch. You have to match the tackle of the fish. But if you do that, oh, so they're fantastic, especially a good one. Any, what, anything up to what about tasting them too? Like if you prepare them right, just what, mm, beautiful or...? Um, look, properly prepared, they're very tasty. I mean, you should keep them alive till you're about to go. Then you should properly dress and clean them. They have a, a black lining on the inside of the stomach wall. All that should be scraped off, otherwise it will negatively affect the taste during cooking. Get them on ice, get them bled, get them iced down. Um, you know, it seems very interesting you should ask that question, Jace, because we've been talking about the same thing this week. You know, we have been so blessed in this country with great tasting fish, whether it be whiting or coral trout or Spanish mackerel or whatever. Um, we can learn a lot from people who come from other countries because they are more experienced at making ah, perhaps fish we might not consider prime, prime table fare into something really appealing and tasty. Exactly. Some tasty stuff. I know I used to do a bit of black fishing around near boats and that, and they get them under boats and yeah. more boats and there. Yeah, they're good. I always love the brim. I like the flathead. Probably like the brim more, but then oh, I'd, more in taste. But, you know, it depends if they're fighting, if you get a good flathead or something on or... Have you got any plans for another Malakuta trip this summer? I do, yeah. In January, we're going for two weeks in January. Oh so. man, you have a ball there. Mate, man. And we've got a better boat this time. I'm, or my mate's boat, but we've got a better boat. Like it's got a you know 55 on it now. The little other dinghy was like a little little five horsepower, so we'd only go about 400 500 meters uh, down the uh, into the inlet. But geez, some oh damn good fishing, you know. And those little live mullets where we pump nippers. Whew, great. Well, fishing. mate, we're going to have to get you out on my boat out to the 12 mile uh, reef digging some of these kingies. As I said, depends. Is it, is is it, is it rocking or is it, is it is it flat? What are we talking here? <laughs> <laughs> Why would that would that be an issue? Oh, um, 
have, you got a, have you got a seasickness issue, no, mate? No, Never no. forget Horatio Nelson, Admiral Nelson, got seasick. If he can win the Battle of Trafalgar, you can come out of the 12-mile reef on the I'll floor. tell you a, a real quick funny story. Just very Please quick. do. I was in 2003, and I, I, was, I lived in, in Toronto, Canada, for about ooh, 12 months or so. Okay. And, um, we actually were, we were taking a boat down. We, we were helping a guy. It was a big 55-foot trimaran uh, uh-huh. big yacht. So we're going across Lake Ontario from uh, Toronto to into New York State. Now, you, New York State goes down into the into the lock system, which takes you right out to uh, the Hudson River through New York City. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're heading to Florida. Anyway, so we, we're going across Lake Ontario. And the first day, it was like glass. Beautiful, you know. And the, the guy, actually, I stayed in a hostel, and I, I met the captain, quite a nice German fellow. You know, now lived in America. And anyway, so the second day we we can see Oswego, New York, and uh, it was about probably you know three or four kilometres offshore, and then boom, motor dies, and I'm thinking, eh, all right, that's not too bad. So he, so that you know, the uh, Jerry, the captain, he, he jumps down into the into the uh, you know the uh, the engine area. Literally thirty seconds later, he jumps up and he's spewing over the edge, and I'm thinking, oh, this is not good. And when I mean rocking, I think we were doing six to eight feet, and this is Lake Ontario. Mind you, it's a big lake, and I'm I'm just I'm just sitting on the uh, yeah the driver's chair, going, oh, I'm starting to feel real sick right about now. <laughs> my mate wasn't feeling, my, was my two other mates weren't feeling really crash hot at all, and we ended up having to. Uh, and I think there couldn't be this type of swell in a lake. Oh, it was big, and it, the and a 55 foot trimaran was like it was bobbing. You know, in like, I couldn't believe how much swell there was. Anyway, we ended up having to call the uh, U.S. Coast Guard to come and uh, basically tow us back in. And you know, me and my mate had to get out to the corners of the trimaran while the U.S. Coast Guard was throwing lines with so we could tie them to the front so they could tow us back in. But, uh, yeah, when, it, when, when it's rocking, this guy's not too good, put it that way. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, well, let's just pick a flat day because I, I know you enjoy it. It does happen. It does happen. It's just that they haven't happened much lately. That's been the problem. Uh, yeah, good stuff. All right, so tell us about, I mean, you know, fishing licenses. Now, you know, to go fishing, you've got to have a fishing license or a fishing game license. You know, where does the money go and how does it get used? Look, it, the guys who administer, it's administered by a trust. The people on that trust are fantastic guys. I'm not 100% supportive of some of their decisions as to where the money is allocated. Um, but I, you know, I respect like their opinion, and they probably know more about it and have more intel than what I would have. Um, there's a lot of licensed fishermen in Western Sydney. Um, by Western Sydney, I sort of mean in probably the the, the um, Blacktown to Penrith area, including Camden and Campbelltown. Um, those people, if you ask me, get a pretty rough deal. Uh, most of the money goes to salt water, which I guess is understandable, with another big allocation to like fresh water west of the Great Divide and the guys who are on the western side. You've got to remember that here in New South Wales, more than half of the licenses, the fishing licenses, are in Greater Sydney in the whole state, which mm. goes to show you how popular fishing is in the metropolitan area, Jason. Absolutely, no, absolutely. All right, we've got so a this good is on my This is on my, uh, very much on my radar at the moment because next month we're going to be... Um, at the Tinning and Tackle Expo, which is out of Essendon Creek. Yep, I'm not uh, too far well, from there, so yeah, might come out, and, come out and meet you. Please do, buddy. And one of the main things we're going to be talking about, and maybe some of your listeners are even interested, is we're going to be talking about a campaign to get access to Prospect Reservoir, which is this huge body of water yes. just north of the M4, chock-a-block full of fish, and we should be able to fish in there. Absolutely. I didn't even think of that. I... 
sometimes I take my uh, my you know I, I ride a bit of you know road bike racing bike and I often go oh yeah yeah I often you know ride that track right out to you know I'll probably go out near Wetherill Park yeah uh, then I come you go back, through I'm, there there's a cycling track past yeah, the reservoir right ab- absolutely so I'm always going through there past I, was, I, I didn't even think there'd be fish in there what would be in there there is so many fish in there I mean that is the greatest recreational resource underused and. Um, Absolutely. I mean, you were talking earlier about how the Greens and how our selfishness uh, wrecks so many opportunities for those of us who love the outdoor life. Um, that water, waterway is full of big fish, including large Murray cod, some really big bass in there. Funnily really? enough, the thing that it's really infested with, for some reason, is this, this species is just, just loves the place, and that is the, the um, catfish. Yeah. The freshwater catfish, which are quite large and also very tasty, very easy to catch on worms. Um, without getting too into it, around the state, 32 towns and cities allow fishing on their primary water supply. Right? So Goulburn, Dubbo, Wagga, Tamworth, Armadale, all those water supplies you can fish on. But for Prospect Reservoir, they say, no, no, you can't fish on it because it might affect the water quality. And it's a very elitist, Sydney-based sort of thing, and it's got to be overturned. And Western Sydney anglers get a very rough deal, and they should be able to fish that waterway. What's the, is, it, is, is that a real reality of something happening like that, or it's off the cuff? No, absolute nonsense. I mean, just farcical nonsense, and, and, and um, there's absolutely no science behind it. I mean, all across the world... For starters, all the water that is, is uh, tertiary treated. I mean, it's, it, it, the, the idea that someone um, uh, managed fishing off the bank, um, you know, could somehow contaminate Sydney's water supply is absolutely farcical. But of course, what happens is when you have a collection of bureaucrats, right, especially like a committee, you know what's like when you've got a committee of 15 or 20 people on there and everybody wants to have their say? Yeah. The say is always going to be negative. No one exactly. wants to stand up and say, hey, let's do something. So really it's up to uh, Premier Barry O'Farrell, who, by the way, gave himself the, his, the portfolio of the Minister for Western Sydney. And he's the only one who can break the logjam on this because, unfortunately, the Minister responsible is just sitting on a hand. Is, is anybody proposing we do that or it's just yes. a pipe, pipe dream? Yes, no, there's, there's a great guy, I won't name him, he might be embarrassed, but there's a great guy from a big fishing club out there. But like we have just seen with the Super Trawler, Jase, you can spend so long with the science and with the presentations and, and, and with the paperwork and with the meetings with the minister's advisors. I mean, let's not forget that with this super trawler, on the 10th of September, Environment Minister Tony Burke said he could not refuse access to the super, super trawler under international law. Do you remember that? That was on the yeah. 10th of September. On the 12th of September, he said, that's it, the super trawler's banned. Why did he do that? Because of political pressure. Mm. Why do you get, how do you get things changed in this country? Due to political pressure. If you spend time on submissions and meetings and go and talk to the, prime, you know, the, 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 the environment minister's personal assistant, you think you've accomplished something, you've accomplished absolutely nothing. Yeah. Look at Shooters and Fishers with this hunting initiative in national parks. How did that come through? It certainly... I mean, Barry O'Farrell, the Premier, completely ruled it out. Do you remember that? I did, he did. Remember that? He said, it's not going to happen. The, the ABC and Fairfax and, and, and you know, the, the green mouthpieces said, oh, you know, if, if you become Premier, would you let, would you let those, those horrible shooters get into the national parks? He said, absolutely not. <laughs> but due to political pressure, he had to back down. And due to political pressure, Tony Burke had to back down. 
Funny, isn't it? I mean, I'd love just imagine that. I could just, I could, I'm, I'm like literally, oh, from the entrance of Prospect Reservoir, maybe five minutes, I could walk there. Dave, are you sitting down at the moment? I am. Okay, this is an eyewitness account, okay? They, to, I, it, the waste of Sydney water and the incompetence of Sydney water beggars belief. But only about two years ago, they put in, they spent like $10 million on pumps going into Prospect Reservoir. Now, the pumps are hardly ever used. And when they use them, they send in like a diver to check the intakes to make sure everything's clear before they turn these things on. Yep. So I have had it firsthand from the guy who was down there that there was Murray Cod like 50, 60 pounds down there around yeah. the pumping station. Yeah, how would you think they'd get it? Uh, oh, it's been stocked, James, for years. Oh, it's really? It's been stocked, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow, mate, I'd love yeah. that. It'd be like it'd be like it'd be like heaven in heaven in my backyard. Heaven in your backyard, and if you're going for those biggies, for heaven's sake, come and get your tackle from us because we are the primary suppliers of heavy, powerful tackle, Jason. Exactly. I think you'd probably need it. <laughs> you'd probably need it. Based on that, I mean, yeah, as long as they managed yeah. it correctly, I don't see a problem. But, oh, of uh, course not. Uh, Absolutely, the, of course not. One of the good ones. I, I, I don't want to say you came to fame here because that wouldn't be a good term, I don't think. But uh, a lot, a lot of people, obviously, you know, that might not know, they might be listening to this and going, "Who, who is this Andrew Hestelow fellow?" They might be, might be thinking, you know. But you were, you were at the uh, Waronga National Parks hunting protest. The Greens had a bit of a do there to protest against uh, national park. Uh, hunting. I mean, can you give us a rundown of uh, what happened that day and also, you know, what sort of motivated you to think, hey, I'm just going to head down there with my little my little sign, I'm going to set up my sign with my megaphone and also too, when did you decide, you know, well, I'm going to get on the megaphone and at what point did you decide to do that? Well, look, for starters, it's in my backyard. I mean, I've lived in, I went to school in Warunga as a little toddler I went to kindergarten in Warunga up at Aberfeldy up Taramara Way, and I've been here for a very long time, right? Yep. So when the Greenies announced that they were going to hold a protest in our local park simply because the uh, Premier of New South Wales, Barry O'Farrell, is our local member, and he has his electorate office in Warunga, um, you know, I thought, what the hey? Because believe it or not, most people up here are pretty good-hearted people. They're pretty good people, and I can't... You, look, we've got a, the odd rat bag, but there's no way in the world the Greenies could produce, like, a crowd of protesters from, like, Warunga types. We're a pretty tolerant bunch. And as we all know, with the Greenies, the further... The, the greater their support is as far as you can get away from the bush, right? Exactly. It's not like there's a, a big chapter of the Greenies out at Burke or Broken Hill. It's all Glebe and Balmain and Matraville and that kind of stuff. People, you know, who live in the, the concrete jungle are the people who are somehow experts on what happens out in the bush. So anyway, so yeah, I went up to, uh, where did I go? I went up to like Dick Smith Electronics. I got like a $100 megaphone. <laughs> I got a sign. I went down there. Yeah, I loved and, your sign. Um, Where'd you get your sign from? I thought that was brilliant. I was, yeah, well, we've was had that for a long time. Yeah. Well, funnily enough, um, we've had that for a long time. Rob Brown, who's now in Parliament, and I got that thing organised many years ago because... Um, the Greenies had this thing, walk against wood chips, and they were going to walk from Sydney down to the Victorian border and protest against outside every sawmill on the way there. So Rob and I made up that banner, and we this is before he was ever in Parliament, before the Suitors and Fishers Party was started. And we went to... Senator Bob Brown was there, and he was like the, the keynote speaker, so we went along there and, and had a bit of fun with the Greenies there. That's where we got the banner from. <laughs> I thought it was fantastic. And what, you just decided to set it up? And 
I just set it up. Um, the important thing to know is that this rally was held on July the 1st, which was the day of the carbon tax. I was really there protesting the carbon tax, which I consider is a very unfair imposition on families and which both the Prime Minister and the Treasurer specifically ruled out prior to, their ele prior to the election. Um, she, we all know that Gillard promised there would be no carbon tax on the government she leads, and that was untrue. So I went down there to protest, and of course the Greenies are the ones which forced the Labor Party into this crazy decision which has destroyed the Labor Party's popularity in this country. And so I went down there with my megaphone, and when the Kate Fearman started to talk, I, I called on her to um, apologise to the people of Australia for the carbon tax which had been introduced on that day. Exactly. Did you set up the sign first when people were there before you... I mean, she started speaking. Do they know... Do people standing next to you, sort of, they thought you were there protesting as well, or did you set up the sign first? What was the... Well, I didn't want to be overly provocative, believe it or not, so I set up the sign away from where they were speaking, right? I mean, I consider it provocative of a bunch of greenies to get in their dirty old Renaults and come out from Glebe or whatever up to my backyard. I mean, Dri I Driving their motor vehicle. Because I, I can promise you... I can promise you... Uh, the people that I saw at that rally were not locals. Absolutely. Driving okay. their cars, no doubt, on their mobile phones, yet claiming to be green as well. As they were just, you know, just your regular renter crowd that you would expect to see coming out of Glebe and Balmain. That, that's what they were. Yeah. And um, so, but yeah, as you probably know, uh, okay, it was a bit embarrassing because the guy was like half my size. He tackled me and they got me out of the crowd and they were whacking me with their banners and stuff. And it just goes <laughs> to show, you know, uh, but you know, I, I, Jason, I've got to say in my own defense, the sun was in my eyes when that guy came for me. And normally I could take him with both hands tied behind my back. Yeah. But but um, look, you know, uh, it was a bit of so you weren't expecting it at all. Did you see him coming? Or I never saw him coming, and I wasn't expecting it. And the the guy, um, well, anyway, look, it was all a bit of argy bargy. What was what was <laughs> very unpleasant? What was the really unpleasant? I, I mean, it doesn't like me that what really happened, but to see how vicious some of these people are, mm. to see you know, to be spat on by a middle aged woman to hear another middle-aged woman using the most filthy language imaginable. I mean, I'm not, you know, a, you know, a little angel myself, but you don't expect to hear a 60-year-old woman using the F word or the C word or something like that. You really exactly. don't, exactly. right? It's disgusting. And that is that is the Greens Party unmasked. That is what they are like. And did, I, mean, I mean, did Kate Famine, I mean, obviously you were pretty... You, know, you weren't probably that close to stage, but you obviously would have been in distance. She would have seen what was going on. I mean, did she witness it, try to stop it? Did she say No, she doesn't try and stop anything. I mean, these people are hardcore people. These people have an agenda and they have an ideology which they feel is superior. They don't take other people's interests into account. That's how we got the carbon tax. That's how we got the marine parks. That's how we got the wilderness areas. And what happens is... Once something is a failure, in the same way, for instance, that the carbon tax is because it's not going to reduce the amount of carbon going into the environment, or the wilderness areas, which we were promised would mean the regeneration in all these rare endangered species, and that's never happened, um, they, they, they never call to account for it. They just move on to the next thing. That's why they're on the marine parks now, or no hunting. I mean, we all knew they were, you know, they were pretty extreme at some things. I mean, even you, like you thought, obviously you probably, you know, in your wildest dreams never would have thought, you know, gee, some guy was going to crash tackle you. So were you surprised? I mean, we all know what they're like, but were you surprised it sort of escalated to that sort of behaviour? Not really, buddy, because I, look, believe it or not, I've known a few greenies, okay? Over the years, 
um, family and friends, and they, they're they very dysfunctional people. I often think some of them, to some degree, maybe there's no scientific or medical term for it, they have almost an undiagnosed sort of illness because they are so dysfunctional, they are so arrogant, they are so certain of their, their own politics and their own position, and yet their relationships, their relationships with their children, with their parents, with their partners and everything is almost always a train wreck. And I, I, I do want to raise that because this guy that tackled me at that um, rally um, had his little boy there. I'll, I'll never forget the look on this little boy, like a five-year-old boy's face, trying to wondering what daddy was doing and this kind of stuff. Mm, disgusting, think, isn't it? And you just think, you just think that is your classical greenie, right? Not, 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 not held back by the fact that he's got his little boy there for whom he should set an example. Um, just go for it. Just go crazy. And that's, that's what you're dealing with. Amazing. And that's why I come back without sounding like I'm harping. It's all politics all the time. Forget about trying to talk to them or debate with them. Just get in there and, 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 and get in and there. And that's where they're sneaky, aren't they? Trying to change legislation. You know, half the time, they, man, that, that's the funny thing I tell people. Like, and I spoke to Robert Borzak you know, two weeks ago about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I listened mean, to that. That was I'm, great. I mean, they'll get out there. They'll be there a week, and then they'll be back on their couches in the city. You know, or even, it doesn't matter where they're from. They'll be back on the couches watching, you know, Big Brother or whatever it may be. You know, and they'll, they'll be out there for one week, and then they won't be bothering. Just like they did with, you know, the Game Council introduced you know, obviously state forest hunting, exactly the same. They'll be out there for a week and then they'll be back on. But that's probably a good point you brought up. I mean, no example for the children. I mean, even, you know, sometimes I think that's even a bit, you know, overrated. People say, oh, it's about the children all the time. But I mean, the, you know, five-year-old kids, surely you would have, you know, he would have had some restraint. I mean, Mate, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it with your little boy watching. You would, you know, I mean, I've got three kids myself. I would never have dreamed of conducting myself like that in public and setting such a horrible example. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not standing on my high horse here, but I come back again to this issue with the Greenies that, you know, if you start to engage with them, whether it be Prospect Dam or Wilderness or Marine Parks, on the issues, right, mm-hmm. um, you're not going to make progress. You're not, you're, you, 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 what's worked? Shooters and Fishers Party, absolutely uh, 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 diametrically opposed to the Greens, and they have had enormous success, right? Tony Burke, 10th of September, I can't do anything. The super trawler has got a license, and I can't breach international law. 12th of September, okay, super trawler, it's banned, okay? All because of political pressure. Exactly. That's the thing about it. they, They know how to, I mean, I'll give them that. They're smart. I'll give them that. Oh, mate, they've got so much time. The rest of us have got jobs and families, and they're, you know, smoking dope in their backyard in Balmain <laughs> or whatever. You know, with free photocopying up at Macquarie University. You know? <laughs> oh, mate, that's never heard of free, free photocopying. Oh, you know, I mean, it, 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 for everyone else, everyone else, their pamphlets and bumper stickers cost money. We're still at work. We're still at work. But you know what? I am not as negative as a lot of people, and I don't feel I. You know, I. I can see sense of change. I mean, I can sense a change. People are fed up with. You know, I mean, look at this stuff about Rhiannon, right? I mean, that is serious stuff. I mean, you know, I'm not a Reds under the bed type. For crying out loud, an order of Lenin. And he's in the federal parliament in Australia. That's terrible, Jase. That's shocking. I know. You know, look at Mr. Borsak right now. His family fled the communists, right? 
he shouldn't have to come out here and have to deal with me. I mean, these, pe- these people... He's getting flashbacks. <laughs> he's getting... Well, he's, yeah. I mean, these people, he's all about ideology, right? And they are not there to compromise. So let's not sit around the table and talk with some greeny bureaucrat about, you know, drawing lines on a map. Let's just get rid of Burke. Let's just go straight to the federal, the opposition, and there's some great guys in there. Um, there's a senator from Tasmania, I can't think of his name, he's the Shadow Minister for Fisheries. If these guys get in, we say, we will support you, but when you get in, we want those um, marine parks uh, revoked. We want, them, we want them stopped, we want them revoked, and this kind of stuff. That's how to do it. Exactly. We have got the numbers. Exactly. But we just don't have the organisation. Yeah, you're giving me a stitch here. I'm literally you know, trying to take my mouth away from the microphone about the uh, free photocopying comment. I, I was almost <laughs> in hysterics here. I didn't want to. I was trying to hold... Man, they get free everything. Seriously. <laughs> oh, I was, oh, trying, I was trying to hold... You go, you go into Parliament House. Go into Parliament House, right? Go up the whatever it is, the 11th floor or whatever it is, the 9th floor, and go past the greenie offices and see all these young greenies coming in there for like open single quotes, work experience, close single quotes. They've got free labour and they abuse the system in every way possible. Um, and they've, that's how they've, get, they've got so much, they've made so much progress. But as you said, let's stay positive. Have a look at what happened in the local council elections. I think the tide is turning. I think people are starting to have enough. Before we finish off, mate, I know you, you know we've been talking mostly about fishing and hunting and what happened in the uh, the protest. But I mean, do you still do? Do you still get out and do hunting when you can? Do you are you more of a I mean a, a target shooter? You sort of a just more hunting. Not what, what? Give me a bit of just a quick bit about uh, you know hunting. Well, mate, I, I uh, this is only total coincidence, Jason. I am standing about a meter now from my thirty inch sandbar on the wall here. Nice. Uh, so my my I mean, look. I have been working so hard. I mean, I'm a small businessman, and thanks to Gillard and the Greenies, I have to work twice as hard as I did four or five years ago. But I love my deer hunting, right? I've been a member of the ADA, the Deer Association, for a long time, the SSAA. I'm a SSAA range officer, not that I'm up there that much. Um, And I was brought up with firearms in the car. I mean, I was brought up at at Canamble, and I had firearms in the car, and we, we went even hunting on horseback, which is something I miss terribly. And and my dream is just, I just want to get back down. I love Dartmouth Dam. I don't know if you know Dartmouth Dam. No, not aware of that. Okay, well, it's east of Albury, and it's just, it's trout, sandbar, deer, get the fire on at night, look at the snow mm. on the top of the mountains, hear the dingoes calling, it's fantastic. Can't complain, can you? Deer hunting, to, to finish off, man, I mean, tell us throughout your years, tell, me, tell us a story, maybe, you know, whether it be a professional story or personal accomplishment, or even a day, say, out on the boat, or a fishing story, or even a hunting story, whatever you want. Tell maybe the story, just a quick story about, you know, a, you know, either a day in the life or a great story in Andrew Hestelow's life. Okay, well, I haven't thought of anything, but looking at this deer on the wall, the story of this deer very quickly, I went down uh, on the uh, Deer Association Hunter Ed course many years ago. I had no idea about I'd never seen a sandbar deer, and I went down there, and I got fired up and I met some guys and they took me out sandbar hunting and I learned to have a look at the browse plants and the tracks and all that kind of stuff. Finally, I got myself onto a block which is just on the southern side of the Murray River, like Koryong area, south of Threadbow. And I was walking along there and I saw uh, a scrape at the bottom of a gum tree with um, a, a branch coming off the gum tree, maybe five feet up. And under, underneath that branch 
there was a lot of cut marks from a set of antlers and I knew there was a big deer somewhere in the area. So I just kept going back and going back and going back. I did some solo backpack hunts. I did 11 hunts down there uh, without even seeing a deer. And I got down there one afternoon and it was raining, so I went to stay in the accommodation down there. They had a little room down there, the property managers. And it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon and the guy came in and he said, mate, you're not going to shoot any deer sitting sitting in here and I go, well, it's, it's raining. And he says, well, get in your car and go up to the area and maybe it'll stop by the time you get up there. So I went out walking out there and I was walking along the creek and it was just on dark and it all came together. And um, I got this big fella on my, my... It was so dark, I had a 338 wind mag. And I <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, well, you need that for big sambo, you really do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I've tried with my 308 and it's just it just doesn't have the horsepower. Really? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm afraid my uh, little seven mil oh eight, you know, which is pretty, yeah, pretty. So it's two point two eighty four, so pretty similar to ballistics of a three oh eight. So mm-hmm. that might not be well, enough. Those, for me now. <laughs> that's a great cartridge. That's a fantastic caliber. But um, with Samba, unfortunately, sometimes you have to take a shot. You know, it's not sort of standing side on at a hundred meters. You know what I mean? That's right. And um, look, this big beautiful deer was lying dead on the grass. I felt terrible. Um, <laughs> I did. I felt so bad at having taken the life of something so beautiful, mm. but nothing was wasted. As it turned out, we took the whole thing into the Corryong butchers, and he cut it up for me. This is a fair while ago. You probably couldn't do that now. Mm. And would you believe the venison tasted terrible? He was in the peak of the rut. Oh, <laughs> I've still got um, a, a great mounted head here, which uh, reminds me of happy times. So I need to get back down there, Jason. I really do. Uh, good. Is talking about yeah, good good times and good truths, but. All right, mate, to finish off, I guess if people wanted to contact you, they want to go to your website, they want information on fishing, they want product, yep. tell, tell people, yeah, I guess you know, if they want to subscribe, because you know, I'm a subscriber, you send me the, uh, I think it's weekly, your weekly fishing um, emails as well. So if people wanted to contact you, where can they go on the internet, emails? Okay, well, if they, if they go to our website, which is um, Downrigger Shop, that's one word, downriggershop.com.au, there's a little uh, hot button there saying get free samples. We put some free samples and a fishing DVD in the mail to to anybody who compl- uh, applies, and we get a lot of nice feedback from that. I do a weekly um, email fishing report, which is pretty, you know, it's usually 40, 50 images. I mean, it's a pretty heavy, big email, but we've got uh, 3,100 people have signed up for that. And um, even if you're not interested in offshore fishing, if you're going, hey, Andy, I'm having trouble getting a packet of leather jacket hooks, I've been doing it for so long, I can put, I can direct you in the right direction. So, yeah, downriggershop.com.au and just send me an email off the website. All right, Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. I mean, we've had a you know, large array of information provided by yourself on the show on fishing, you know, the, the state of fishing in, you know, not only just Sydney and New South Wales, but also a bit of Australia, you know, a bit of hunting, you know, my favourite, a little bit of politics as well, like the introduction to my show says. Always very fun, but I'm glad you've been able to come on the show and you know share some interesting knowledge, you know, about your local area, you know, hunting, shooting, obviously lots of fishing, how people can go about fishing, and uh, appreciate you coming on my show to share that knowledge, man. Thank you. I'm very grateful to you, mate. I've been listening to the podcast. I think what you're doing is fantastic, and please don't stop. You've just been educated, and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.